Hello, my modern women. This is your host, Nicole Colantoni with Single at 30, the manual for the modern woman. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Sunday Dating Scaries. As mentioned earlier this week, your support means the absolute world to me. So moving forward, I will be sending a token of my appreciation to anyone who writes a written review of the podcast. But before I do that, please DM me so that I know who you are and where to send it. My modern women, this week we have a very special guest answer each of your questions. Not only is she a Harvard-trained behavioral scientist turned dating coach who studies the world of modern dating and relationships, she is also the director of relationship science at the dating app Hinge. In addition to this, she is also the author of How to Not Die Alone, which is a data-driven, step-by-step guide designed to help you find true love and transform your life. Speaking to our guest today was an incredible learning experience. We covered many topics when it comes to dating and relationships, including things like what exactly a relationship or breakup contract is, as well as whether dating someone with a different approach to finances is a deal breaker or not. My modern women, I introduce to you Logan Yuri. Logan, welcome to Sunday Dating Scaries. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So you're a behavioral scientist at the dating app Hinge. What does a typical workday look like for you? Yeah, so I really have a dream job in many ways because I get to spend all day thinking about what's going on in dating. What are the trends? What kind of research can we do? How can we help people with dating? And so there's really no typical day. But one thing that I do a lot is I talk to our research team and talk to them about What are we hearing from users? Um, What should we be exploring? What are the big questions? And I work a lot with the marketing and the communications team to really get stories out there that help people learn how to date better. Amazing. So you would know then that a common question uh, singles have is how can they improve their dating profile to increase their matches? Oh, yes. I love this question. It's definitely something I've thought about a lot. And what's really fun is I wrote this book about dating and I include tips on profiles, but When I joined Hinge, we spent a huge amount of time looking at people who are successful on Hinge. So people who are able to get matches and dates, what are their profiles look like? And I can share some of the key tips from that research. So the first thing is that you want to tell a story and you want to have variety. So for example, I was coaching someone who had four pictures of her and her dog from a photo shoot. And I was like, this is great. This is cute, but it's not telling a story. We understand that you wore that outfit that day and that you have a dog who you love. We don't know more about you. And so you really want to have variety and different things that show us who you are. The second thing is that your first photo matters a lot. It's really what people base swiping on. And, you know, Hinge doesn't have swiping. So maybe I'll restate that and say, it's really how people make their decision in the first place. And so if they like your first profile picture, then they'll keep going. And if not, they won't. So for the first picture, you want a clear photo of your face, like a headshot, well lit, no sunglasses, no filter, just really show me what you look like. And throughout your profile, we want to see a full body shot. We want to see you doing something that you love. And we want to see pictures of you with friends and family because that helps us see that you have a social life. And then for your prompts, it's the same thing. Have variety, be a little bit serious and a little bit silly. And it's really through showing us different sides of yourself that we really understand who you are overall and are excited to meet you. 
I once read in an article that people are more interested in you if they see group photos, like a photo with of you with your friends, because it's like obviously gives off the impression that you're a social person and you've got to, you come from a community. Has that come up in your research? Yes. So it's interesting. There's a fine line there. So you do want at least one photo of you with friends and family. It helps people see that you have a social life, that you're a part of your community, that there's people you're close to. You want to avoid those pictures that, you know, in the US I'd call, where's Waldo? I know in the UK, they called it, where's Wally? What's the, what's the Australian version? Yeah, I think it's where's Wally. Yeah. So you don't want to have photos where it's like 13 blonde women who are all bridesmaids at a wedding. And which one of these blonde women are you? Like people find those photos annoying and frustrating. And it's like, why are you making me figure out who you are? So yes, have a group photo, but no, don't make it a where's Wally photo. So what do you think singles should look for in a potential match? Yeah. So I've been thinking about this a lot. What are the things that you can look for on the app and what are the things that you can only find out in person? And it's really important to differentiate those because oftentimes people get confused and they're looking for things on the app that you can really only figure out once you're on the phone or once you're on FaceTime or or in person. And so that's just one important distinction is that some things like, you know, um, how do I feel around you? What side of you do what side of me do you bring out? Things like that can only be figured out in these synchronous communications. But um, in my book, I have this chapter about what matters more and less than we think for long-term relationship success. Some of the things that matter less than we think include money, looks, having the same personality, and having shared hobbies. All of those matter, but we just see that people really overestimate how much they matter. And people really think a lot about, you know, I have to find the hottest person, the wealthiest person. It's like our brains are very adaptable. Whatever we get, we end up adapting to and getting used to. And so over time, it won't feel as profound. Instead, the things that matter more than we think they do are things like being able to make hard decisions together, somebody who's loyal, emotionally stable, somebody who's kind. Um, And one that's really become very important to me is what side of you that person brings out, because we all have these complex different sides of our personalities. And we really want to be with someone who brings out the secure, happy, ambitious, excitable part, as opposed to someone who maybe brings out the insecure, anxious, um, depressed, worrying side. And so really thinking about who am I in this dynamic? Logan, I love that you said that because I've been in a previous relationship where my ex-partner was like perfect on paper, but he brought out the worst side Mm -hmm. of me. And now my current partner, we don't have similar interests, but we bring out the best in both of each other when we're around each other. And that's what I've really come to realize is like the most important thing in a relationship. Well, one of at least. I I love that. that. I'm so glad it resonates with you. And I feel the same way. Like I feel my husband is so different from me. Like he's vegan. He's an engineer. He works out every day. Like he's much more rigid than me in some ways we're opposites, but it's like, I have dated a lot of people and he's the person that makes me happiest. And I needed that push pull. I needed that tension. And so really thinking about who are you in the relationship and is that who you want to be for the rest of your life? Definitely. So what are some of your do's and don'ts for opening lines on Hinge? Yeah. So I really like to think about your profile as your opening line. That's kind of my hot take. So I think about it this way. Imagine that you're walking into a bar and you're wearing a Game of Thrones t-shirt 
you're going to get a totally different reaction from people you meet than if you walk into a bar wearing a basketball jersey. In both situations, you're giving an impression of who you are and what matters to you, and people are going to respond to you accordingly. And so your profile is really the first line is when you say, this is who I am, and it changes the conversation and what people talk to you about. But specifically for what you're talking about, which is when you're sending somebody a comment, I have a little formula that I like, which is to say, hey, person's name. Um, I notice blank, something specific from their profile. Um, I blank, so a connection that you have to that place and then ask a question about it. So it might be something like, um, you know, hey, Nicole, I saw that you have a lot of pictures on your profile from Barcelona. I really love Gaudi. Who's your favorite architect? And so I'm showing effort that I've looked at your profile. I'm showing my connection to it. And then I'm asking you a question, which makes it easier for us to get into a conversation. So yeah, appearing engaged in the other person's like profile, as opposed to just like a generic one-liner that could be appropriate for anybody. Yeah, you said don't. So I should say those, you know, don't be offensive. Don't be overly sexual. Don't be cliche. Cliches would include... Hey, beautiful. Hi, handsome. How was your week? How was your weekend? All of that is so boring. It feels copy and pasted. I think cheesy pickup lines also don't work. What people want to see is effort. They want to see that you've looked at their profile and that you've put some thought into it. And sometimes people say like, I send messages and I don't get responses. I'm sick of putting effort in. And it's like, I understand that you won't always find the results that you want, but putting in effort is always a good idea. And when we look at people on Hinge who aren't getting as many matches as they want, the number one thing they can change is their profile. And the second thing is sending comments instead of just likes. Right. And what is a great first date idea? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, One of the things that we found in our research at Hinge recently is that sober dating has become way more popular, especially with Gen Z. You just have huge percentage of people who are saying, I don't want to drink on a date. I don't like the way it makes me feel afterwards. It's not great for my mental health. I get that anxiety. It's more expensive. People are really opting for sober dates. And so I can give some suggestions there. And The idea is really to move beyond that first date with the two drink minimum. I mean, it's fine if you want to go for a drink with, um, with your, with your match, but what is something more creative that you could do? And so can you go to an ax throwing class? Can you take, oh, um, wine, oh, you know, a class where you drink wine and paint a picture. Can you go to the park and play a game? What are different things that you can do where you're not just sitting across from the person interviewing them or sharing a cocktail, but really having an experience and, you know, get a little nervous, get your adrenaline going, have fun. And it's really in playing and have an experience that you can say, who am I around this person? I feel like in those dates that are just coffee or drinks, it's just sort of boring and it all blends into each other. It's so true. And I've always felt like those dinner dates or those dates where you are sitting across from one another feel more like a interview in the early stages Mm -hmm. as opposed to an opportunity to connect and just get to know each other in a comfortable environment. So they're really great tips. But I've also heard that dateflation is impacting the way singles date at the moment. How do you define what dateflation is and what advice do you have for singles dating on a budget? 
Yeah. So that's actually a new term for me, but I did learn about it recently. And of course, everyone is thinking about how can I still prioritize dating while making it affordable? And it kind of reminds me of the beginning of the pandemic. So I started at Hinge in March, 2020, which of course was a crazy time to start a new job. And it was lucky in that right away, we had a chance to start surveying and doing research on people and dating. And what we found was that Um, as much as the world was shutting down, people didn't stop dating. In fact, they sent more messages that month than they had the previous March. And so there's really a feeling of no matter what's going on in society, whether it's um, issues with inflation or a pandemic, people are not willing to put love on hold. And so I've been really impressed by people's creativity. One of the simplest things that I've seen is people just going on dates that are walks. And I really like that. I'm a fan of the walking date because there's this interesting research from biological anthropology that shows that when we're actually looking at each other, um, making direct eye contact, it can be harder to think. And that's because I'm paying attention to your social cues. You know, I'm thinking like, oh, Nicole's nodding. Oh, Nicole's frowning. Oh, what does Nicole think? And like part of my brain is so worried about interpreting your facial expressions that it's hard for me to think. If we're both looking straight ahead and I don't have to make eye contact with you, I can actually think more clearly. And maybe you felt this, like sometimes if I'm thinking and I'm on a Zoom, I'll look out the window and it's just a subconscious thing, but it's like, I can think better when I don't look right at you. And so I love walking dates or dates where you sit next to each other at a restaurant instead of across the table, because it turns it from that interview vibe really into something where it's like, I can express myself more freely. Absolutely. And I was actually single when COVID started to take place. And I used to go on three-hour walking dates. And I'm such an advocate because they were the best. You just relax and you can express yourself without feeling like you're exposed, you know, in that sort of interview dynamic. I am so curious to hear your response to this question. Why do you think some singles struggle to find love on the apps and then others find love almost immediately? Oh, I love that question. It's so interesting. And, you know, I really understand where that question comes from because I've had friends that were in a relationship, they break up, they go on a few dates and they get into another relationship and other friends that have been single for so long. And it's just like, what's going on? Like, what's the mystery here? But I really feel like dating is such a personal process and we're all coming at it from different places. So some people are you know, some people have quote unquote done the work, right? They've been to therapy, they've processed their trauma, they figured out what's going on for them. They really know what they want. They're not distracted by fuck boys and things like that. Then you have people who have been dating for a while, but are repeating the same patterns over and over again. And so that's one of the big things that I think about in dating is this idea of dating blind spots, these patterns of behavior or ways of thinking that hold people back from finding love. And so I actually have a quiz on my website where people can figure out their dating tendency. And these are basically what are the blind spots holding you back? And the point is that some people are held back by unrealistic expectations of their partner. Some people have unrealistic expectations of relationships and some people have unrealistic expectations of themselves. And so I find that the difference between people who are perpetually single and people who um, get into relationships or it's easy for them to be partnered is often those blind spots and really their expectations around dating. And what are some of the most common mistakes you see that people make when it comes to modern dating? 
Yeah. You know, I, I see a lot of mistakes actually through my work at Hinge and through my coaching. And it hurts me because I'm like, oh, so many people are making the same mistakes over and over again. And I wish I could help them. And one of the things is really being too attached to your type. So people will show up to coaching with me and they'll say, Logan, I know exactly who I want. I want a woman who's five, seven skinny, has red hair and works in engineering. And I don't need your help figuring that out. I just need you to find her for me. And they're so sure about this. They want to get, you know, a billboard on the highway, like advertising for this person. And I'm like, dude, you've been looking for this girl your whole life. You've dated some people like this. It hasn't worked out. Isn't it possible that your so-called type actually isn't who's going to make you happy long-term? And when I say that to people, they're like, Logan, you're telling me that I need to settle. You're telling me that everyone else can find love, but I don't deserve it. And I can't find that person. And they're so afraid of that S word of settling. But really, I think where people make progress is when they say, I'm going to be open-minded to what this person will look like, what package they'll come in. They might be different from what I thought I was my type. And it's when they make that shift that they really see different results. And so it almost reminds you of what you said earlier, where you know you had dated someone who was great on paper, maybe in other words, what you thought was your type, but the person you're dating now who's different from that, you're like, I'm surprised, but this is working better than the other relationships. That is exactly right. Like I was 100% one of those single people who had like a very firm set of criteria and I thought I knew what type was right for me. And now my current partner doesn't necessarily subscribe to that criteria, but we work more perfectly than any other relationship. So that's great advice. I'm so glad Uh, to hear it. But what advice do you have for singles who are looking for their last first date, but hate going out or don't have friends to venture out with on a Saturday night anymore? Yeah, I think the don't have friends to go out with anymore is such a good point. I know from so many singles that they, they get older and they turn 30 and they, they say like, oh, I feel like this game of magical chairs or sorry, do you know the game musical chairs? Yes, yes. Yeah. They feel like they're playing a game of musical chairs and all of a sudden the music stops and they're left single and all their friends are in relationships and that they feel very isolated and that it's, people aren't going to brunch anymore talking about dating because they're all in these relationships. And so just want to validate that that can be very, very isolating for people. Um, there's a couple things I would say to do in this situation. So one is there's a lot of ways to meet people that don't necessarily involve like going out, like going to a club or going to a bar or going drinking, and it doesn't have to be a Saturday night. And so what is a hobby that you like? You know, I have friends that have met their husbands doing salsa dance, people that have met their husbands at a protest, people who have met their wives, um, you know, in a running club. And so First of all, maybe let's just take it out of the context of it has to be Saturday night. It has to be all single ladies or single men out to meet each other. You can meet people out and about in real life if you're open to it. And I really would look for events that are very interactive. So maybe like um, a workshop where you're going to partner up with different people. Um, Maybe that's like a class where you do bike maintenance or a certain type of workout class. And then also something that you're going to enjoy because that's going to bring out a very happy side of you. And so just taking kind of the stigma out of going out by yourself and thinking it doesn't just have to be Saturday night with girlfriends. And then the other thing is, you know, if you, if you're looking for your last first date, but you hate going out or don't have friends to go out with, the apps can obviously be a great place to do that. And so, for example, 
on Hinge, you could meet someone, talk to them for a little bit, do a FaceTime, see if they're the kind of person that you want to meet up with in person, and then go do an activity that you're interested in. And so really take it out of my friends have moved beyond me and I don't feel excited to, well, what's something that I want to do? And I'll go do that with a new match of mine. Yeah. And I often feel like you find people who are more aligned with you when you do that. Because obviously, if you're going out on a Saturday night, there's alcohol involved, you're at a bar or a restaurant. But if you're meeting somebody who has a like-minded interest of yours, then you already are starting off with a really strong foundation there too. Uh, How many dates do you think it takes to determine if someone is a good fit? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I'd say I don't have a hard rule of thumb about how many. Like, If you don't know by five, you already should know. But where I do have a rule is that I think that people should go on at least two dates with someone to give them a chance. So making that second date the default. There are so many people out there that are amazing partners, but they're not very sparky. They don't give you that feeling on a first date. Maybe they're not the most charismatic or they don't love to be the center of attention. And so they're incredible and they would make amazing partners, but people just look past them because they're like, oh, it wasn't as exciting or I don't find myself obsessing over them. And so I really try to train my dating coaching clients and the students in my class to think, Think past the spark. I like to say F the spark and go for the slow burn. And the slow burn are those people who will be great long-term partners, but don't give you that instant feeling of chemistry. And so what I mean there is that if somebody is, if you go on a first date with someone and you don't feel that feeling right away, go on a second date with them, see how you feel and see if your interest, your curiosity, your attraction to them is growing. And you want to have someone where there's this upward trajectory where over time you're finding yourself more and more interested in them. And so I don't have a rule for how many dates you do need to go on until you know, but I, I, I like to suggest to people that they give everyone at least two dates to really give them a chance. Yeah. And it's so true because often those first dates where there is that huge spark, that can die out very quickly. Whereas if it's a slow burn, you know, it's like a long-term investment. And I think that that's like such a better way of looking at dating. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. So just like my, you get on my soapbox about the the sparky people. So um, first of all, some people are just really sparky and they give that feeling to everyone. Like I was talking to a girlfriend recently and we're talking about a mutual friend and she's like, yeah, I just really feel connected to him. And I was like, I feel really connected to him too. Everyone who meets him feels that like he just does give people that feeling of I'm only listening to you. You're the only one in the room. And not that it makes me like him less, but I think it can feel confusing for my single friends who meet him where they're like, wow, I have such a connection to him. And it's like, you do, but he gives that feeling to everyone and it might actually come a little bit from narcissism. The second thing is that, um, you know, you can have this really intense, intense burn, but it burns out. And so many people who are divorced or unhappily married, they had the most intense relationship in the beginning and it just faded out. And so you're better off to have someone where it burns over time. Then the last thing is that you know, we know from research that most people don't experience love at first sight and that they end up with someone who they met through friends or they um, liked as more as they met them over time. And so it really can take time for attraction to develop and it can and does grow over time. Logan, do you believe in love at first sight? Not really. I, I have heard about it, but, you know, there's research from 
Israel that shows that only 11% of people say that they've experienced it. So it makes me feel like for some people it's true, but I really feel like maybe that's chemistry at first sight or attraction at first sight, or like, I want to jump your bones at first sight, but I don't really think that that's love. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We spoke earlier about uh, expectations. What do you think is a fair list of criteria when looking for a date? Yeah. So I was watching Indian matchmaking over the weekend and it's, have you seen that show? No, but I've been recommended it. Yeah, it's so good. So it's just really interesting because she's this famous Indian matchmaker from Mumbai and she goes and talks to different people. And it feels like the older people get, the longer their list of expectations are. And they talk about, I understand where they're coming from. They're like, I've waited this long, you know, he or she better be perfect. And your list gets longer. And so unfortunately, I think a lot of people have too many criteria and in the wrong places. For example, they have, um, you know, too much of an emphasis on height. So many women set like six feet tall as a height minimum. And we know at least in the US, um, less than 15% of men are six feet or taller. And so immediately when you set that, you're blocking out 85% of men. And there's just no evidence that shows that a taller man is a better husband. And so that's an expectation that I think is really flawed. Same thing with age. People are really, really tight with their age boundaries on the app. And I just really recommend that you add some to your maximum, subtract some from your minimum and be more open to dating somebody of a slightly different age and see what emerges for you. And it's really about testing things. It's about saying, you know, I think I want someone the same age, but if they're a little bit younger, does that matter? And testing that out. Um, So yeah, the, the age, the height things I think are misled. And in general, I think people focus too much on these resume qualities, things like Did this person go to this type of school? What level of degree do they have? How much money do they make? And they would be much better off thinking about deeper qualities that I talked about before. Kindness, loyalty, emotional stability, and again, what side of you they bring out. And it's hard because you can't find that out from a profile. You have to figure it out by going on dates with them. But that's part of the journey of figuring out, is this a good match for me? It's so true. I'm curious though, Logan, in your research, does it show what is actually a good age discrepancy between the match? I haven't seen specific research on that. I mean, I imagine, you know, I'd have to look into it. I imagine most people um, end up with someone like within, you know, somewhat of a close range to them. But of course, there's lots of exceptions and people who have a bigger age gap and um, that works for them. So it's not something that we've researched specifically, but in general for that, I like to say date like a scientist. And that means that you have a hypothesis and you test it and you're willing to embrace whatever you find. So if your hypothesis is, I need to marry someone the same age as me, why don't you date someone who's not the same age as you and see how it goes and be willing to be proven wrong? Love that. And what is good dating etiquette for turning someone down? Oh, yes. I love this. So I really am very anti-ghosting. I think it's such a harmful and hurtful part of modern dating. And I feel like it really comes from a lack of empathy where when you hurt someone to their face, you have to see the impact of that. But when you hurt somebody digitally, you can just sort of pretend it didn't happen. And so we've done really interesting research on this at Hinge where we asked people, you know, would you like to be ghosted or not? And 85% of them said, tell me rejection hurts, but I'd rather know. And so we hear loud and clear that people don't want to be ghosted. Yet 
a lot of Hinge users say that they ghost people because they don't know how to explain that they don't want to see someone again, or they think it's less hurtful. And so what I like to do is to have a little template in the notes folder on your phone. And when it happens, you can just send this without thinking too hard about it. And so you could send something like, hey, Nicole, like so much fun to meet you. Like, thanks for telling me all the info about visiting New Zealand. Um, I'm not feeling a romantic match, but it was really nice to meet you. And so just something that, you know, shows gratitude, has humanity, acknowledges that you went out, but is clear that you don't want to move forward and you don't know, owe anyone a specific explanation. You don't have to give feedback. It doesn't have to be more intense than that, but it's really about telling them the truth so that they can move on and not hold these false hopes. And I love that you brought up ghosting because a lot of my listeners are struggling with ghosting. Totally. What advice do you have for them when it comes to being ghosted by somebody they yeah. thought a good match? Right. So my first advice is just don't ghost yourself. We know that a lot of people who don't want to be ghosted do ghost. And so I'd say, you know, look in the mirror and make sure you're not also perpetuating the problem. Yeah. What I would say to them is that it really hurts and acknowledge that I understand where they're coming from. If they want to send a message checking in, they can. So generally I would say, you know, don't send something that's too, um, aggressive or rude. So I wouldn't be like, Hey, what happened? Like, I thought we were getting along. I might send one more message. That's like, Oh, I finally watched that show that we talked about and see if the person engages. But otherwise I've found with my clients that they don't really get that much closure from confronting the person or even sending that last message. And so unfortunately I would say like, you have to, um, kind of, get over it, understand that it happened. It's an unfortunate part of modern dating and just move forward. I would say, try not to dwell on it. Try not to take it personally. The person who goes to do, that's probably a behavior of theirs. And yes, as I said, I generally find that confronting the person doesn't really lead to very satisfying results. And at the end of the day, if the person is ghosting you, they're not your person. It's a great filtering process. Like your person wouldn't yeah. do you. So just like, I think that's really good advice. Yeah. Right. Like you don't want to be with someone who you had to convince to date you. You want to be with someone where you're choosing them and they're choosing you and ghosting isn't like that. And I think at the point where there's like this power imbalance or one of you is trying to persuade the other, it doesn't feel like a great foundation for connection. Exactly. And what advice do you have for women with dating app fatigue? That's a really interesting one. I've definitely been hearing more about it. We've done some research on this at Hinge and we found that the group that tends to feel the most burnout is actually straight women who receive a lot of incoming likes and they spend a lot of time navigating the people who like them and and looking at all those options and then they feel overwhelmed. And that feeling of overwhelm is correlated with feeling burned out. And so what we found was actually what helps you get over burnout is feeling like you're in the driver's seat, feeling like you're in control of what you're doing. And so I like to think about it this way, or or my advice is to go more after what you want because that helps you feel autonomous and in control. And we found that you're more likely to um, get the kind of dates you wanna go on. And so I think about it this way. If you wanted a new job and you only responded to incoming messages from LinkedIn recruiters, 
you probably wouldn't find your dream job that way because that's what other people are projecting onto you. And that's what these incoming likes are. But if you actually scroll through people and say, oh, this person's super cute, or I'm interested in this person, or this person loves Legos, and so do I, you have a feeling of I'm going after what I want. I'm in control. I have autonomy. And it's in that process that you move from feeling overwhelmed to feeling in control. And that's really helps you overcome burnout. That is such an interesting insight. Like it's a good problem to have, you know, receiving yeah, all this like totally. overwhelms. My understanding of dating app fatigue was you're just not succeeding on the apps. You're not getting the matches that you want. So that's interesting to see that it's in the reverse. But for the women who are fatigued by just constantly swiping but not having any success, do you have any tips for them? Sure. Yeah. So one thing that is simple, but works really well is just switching up your profile. So kind of going back to what I said before, like your profiles, your opening line, it's defining what conversations you're having. So I had a client who was really bored and she was having the same conversation over and over again. And basically she had this picture of herself doing trapeze and she looked really cute. It was an interesting photo. That's a quirky hobby. So every guy was messaging her about the trapeze photo. So even though it was working well in terms of getting engagement, she was bored of having that conversation. And so when we took that photo out and swapped it out for something different, she had a whole new set of conversations and that made dating more interesting. And so think about the things that make dating feel boring, having the same conversation over and over again, going on the same dates, feeling frustrated by the same patterns okay, well, how can you swap those patterns? You can change your profile. You can have different types of conversations. You can go on different dates. You can do inner work so that you break some of those patterns holding you back. And so I think it's really about feeling like you're treading water and you're not moving forward and then saying, I refuse to tread water and I'm going to do what I need to do to move forward. Yeah, that's such great advice. And a lot of my listeners have been sending in screenshots of the horrible one-liners a lot of men write to them. Mostly men. I'm sure women are responsible for doing it too, but I'm seeing mostly men do it. Some of which are deeply disrespectful messages. Yeah. What advice do you have for women experiencing this sort of behavior? Yeah. In that case, I would just, you know, ignore them or block them. I think it's one of those things where like, I like to think about the whole dating ecosystem in general. Like how can we get people to send more thoughtful messages? How can we get people to be kinder? And so it's unfortunate that people are having that experience, but instead I focused my time on educating people to say, this is what a good line is. Like stop sending, Hey, sexy. Like nobody wants to receive that message. It doesn't feel unique. It doesn't make me feel sexy. It makes me feel like you're lazy and not putting effort in. And so really helping people who probably do want to find connection. How can we help them write better messages? And Logan, what do you think is the key to a long lasting and happy relationship? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, so there's these people named the Gottmans. They are some of the best relationship scientists, people that have done such amazing work in the field. And they have done some amazing experiments that I'm really interested in. And they talk about this idea of bids for connection. And so a bid is something small. It can be small or big, verbal or nonverbal. And it's a way of saying to your partner, I really want to connect with you. And so it might be that when you walk in the room, your husband says, how was your day? And he's trying to connect with you or that your partner's doing the laundry and they sigh and they want you to ask them, you know, why are you upset? And so it's really somebody's way of saying like, I want to connect with you. 
And when you see or recognize a bid, you have the ability to turn towards the bid, which is to accept it and engage with it and have that moment. You can turn away from the bid and ignore it, or you can turn against the bid and really say, you know, why are you bothering me? I'm so busy and really return it with anger. And so what they find when the Gottman study, the relationship masters, the people who are happy from the relationship disasters is that what separates them is that the relationship masters are really, really good at making bids, recognizing bids and turning towards bids. And so the secret is not, you know, passionate sex, a trip to Hawaii once a year. It's really connecting with your partner. And as they say, doing small things often. Yeah, it's so true. I always say that in my relationship, it's the small stuff that matters to me, not the big gestures. Totally. Gifts. It's like how you show up every day in small ways. Uh, but I read somewhere that you're an advocate for a relationship contract and a breakup contract. Talk me through this. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, so much of my work is about this idea of intentional dating and really dating, knowing what you want, being thoughtful and really making a plan. I feel like that's how I live my life. I love to have a plan, you know, for better or for worse. And so the relationship contract is really this catalyst for a conversation. And so you sit down and you spend a weekend together and you say, you know, what are some beautiful rituals that we want to have? Well, we go to the farmer's market every Saturday and then we make lunch. I love that. I want to protect that. Even when we have kids, I want to keep that farmer's market ritual. Or I love spending Christmas with your family. And I think we should do that and protect that time and really thinking through things like that. What about saying, you know, I feel like you haven't gotten to know my friends as well. And that's really important to me. And, you know, can we make it a priority for you to spend time with my friends? And so there's all these unspoken expectations in relationships. There's all these feelings of not being able to express what you want. And so really the, the, for the, both the breakup contract and the relationship contract, it's about creating the questions, creating the space that allow you to have those conversations that really make your relationship better. Definitely. And what are some dating deal breakers? Oh, that's interesting. You know, I think it, it, it depends on you. And so what your deal breakers are, like there's people who are religious and they want to make, you know, they want to have a family and raise their kids in that religion. Well, for them, somebody of a different religion would be a deal breaker for someone else. They don't care about that. Um, I think people should really be aware of what matters to them. And they should understand some things are pet peeves and not deal breakers. And they should not be overly concerned about things like, you know, chewing with your mouth full or having a bad sense of style. Like, yeah, those things aren't great, but you can overcome them. You can help someone. And really, I think it's important to have deal breakers that um, feel true to you while mostly saying that you can be flexible about many things. So compromise on most things and then double down on the few things that really matter. What about infidelity in the early stages of dating when you haven't actually identified that you're a couple yet, you haven't actually committed to one another. Do you think that that's something that you can move past? Yeah, that's interesting because you're calling it infidelity. But if you haven't defined the relationship, maybe one person just thinks that you're just not exclusive or sexually exclusive. And that's why I'm so such a big proponent of defining the relationship and just had so many friends and clients who got so hurt because they assume like, well, we've been hanging out for four months. I deleted my apps. I assume you did too. 
I'm not seeing anyone else. And then they look at someone's phone and find out that they're still matching with people and they get so hurt. And I'm like, I understand you're hurt, but you made an assumption. And so the antidote to that is to say to someone like, Hey, Nicole, we've been dating for four months. I'm really enjoying it. I feel ready to not date someone else. What about you? And maybe you'll say yes. And we're on the same page. Maybe you'll say, no, I still want to play the field. And even if that hurts me, at least I have the information that I need to make the right decision for myself. And so we often avoid conversations because of fear of finding out information that we don't want to know. But that in and of itself is relevant because it means there's a part of us that thinks, hmm, something sketchy is going on. And so in those moments, I would really encourage people to ask the hard question and maybe get an answer they don't want because that data will empower them to make the right next decision. And it's when we assume that we really get hurt. Totally. And to go back to your idea of the breakup contract, once you have made the decision to uh, commit to one another and the relationship doesn't work out, how would a breakup contract help you? Yeah. So this is a way for people to navigate something that's so hard for them. I mean, there's tons of research that breakups are one of the most traumatic events we can go through. We really feel it physiologically in our bodies. Um, People going through a breakup perform worse on IQ tests. They're more likely to commit crimes, just really, really damaging. And so thinking in advance when you're in more of a cold kind of practical state of, you know, how do we want to handle the breakup and who do we want to tell? And thinking about that, it's really trying to say like from my kindest, most generous, most mature place, how do I want to show up even in something as hard as a breakup? It's so true because my partner and I are picking up our dog in three weeks and we've been, yeah, so excited, but we've been having the chat. Like, obviously we don't want to break up. We want to be together forever, but (laughs) if it happens, who gets the dog? (laughs) You have to sort of like identify that early on. So you're not surprised when it does happen. And one of you are like, well, hang on, that's not fair. You've already agreed what it looks like, which, you know, it's not very romantic, but necessary, right? Yeah, that's exactly how I feel about it. It's like, we could all pretend that like you and your partner are never going to break up and this dog is going to be with you for the rest of your lives, but you might break up. That's just part of it. And so... I would prefer that people be more reasonable because I don't think it's anti-romantic. I think it's actually part of what real relationships are like. And sure, it's like, if you have a hot fling with somebody at Oktoberfest, like you're not gonna be talking about a prenup because that's just like a fun, passionate weekend. But when you're having a long-term relationship with someone, things do come up, right? Are my parents gonna live with us if they get sick? Um, Are we gonna take care of a sibling who has special needs? Like there's all these parts of life that might not feel romantic, but that's absolutely part of a long-term relationship. And the ability to have those conversations long-term is really what separates people from have who have a really fun beginning to the relationship and then they burn out to people who have a sustained long-term relationship. Totally. And just to go back to having the hard chats, what advice do you have for women trying to avoid a situationship or turn a situationship into a proper relationship? Oh my goodness. Situationships, uh, you know, the other S word besides settling. Yeah. You know, these things are so frustrating for people. And I've done a lot of research into this. And in general, you know, I think that people hold out their hopes where they just feel like maybe this will turn into something, or if I'm just, you know, a little bit lovable or a little bit cuter, a little bit more easygoing, this person will like me. And that's just not really what we've found. We feel like situationships really emerge 
when people are not being clear from the beginning about what they want. And so the best way to avoid a situationship is to not get into one in the beginning. And so really being upfront, there's a term called hardballing, which is from the beginning, right? Saying what you're looking for and what you want. And it doesn't have to be intimidating. It doesn't have to be demanding. It could just be something like, hey, I've been dating for a while. I've had a lot of fun. I've had my adventures. I can tell that I'm ready to meet someone and eventually have a family. What about you? What are you looking for? And I didn't tell you that there was a right answer. I didn't tell you a sob story. I didn't ask for forgiveness. I just said, here's where I'm at. Where are you at? And it's in those moments that someone might say, oh, I just got out of a relationship and I'm looking for something casual. Great. Might feel like this is a little bit of a waste of time, but at least I didn't date you for six more months and then think that we were exclusive when we're not. And so really a big theme of what I'm saying today is that being upfront from the beginning can be scary, but it really gives you the ability to have all the information you need to make the right decision for yourself. A hundred percent. And we spoke about love at first sight, but do you believe in soulmates? I don't believe in soulmates. I feel like that, I feel like that concept can be very limiting for people. So I talked before about this quiz that I have on my website, and there's these three types of daters with unrealistic expectations. And one of them is the romanticizer. And the romanticizer is looking for love at first sight. They think there's one person out there for me. I'll know it when I see it. I believe in soulmates. And I've just worked with so many sad romanticizer clients who are so, oh, that's you. Okay. Well, you, yeah, do you and I needed you, Logan. <laughs> I know. Well, it sounds like you're doing great. But what happens for these romanticizers is that they get so caught up in the love story and the we met. And it's so much about the romantic part that they don't understand that if you're dating somebody or you're married to someone for 50 years, the day you met is 0.0055% of the total relationship. And that actually the romantic part is the beautiful relationship you built, not the idea of what the person looks like or not them matching your type. And so really, I feel like soulmates makes people, it gives them an excuse to reject a relationship once it gets hard, instead of embracing that work and saying, yeah, relationships take work and I'm going to make this work. Yeah, it's so true. As opposed to just feeling like the perfect relationship just arrives, you take the power and you actually create it for yourself. It's just, yeah. I love that. Yeah, great relationships are built. They're not discovered. A hundred percent. Okay, this is a question that I get all of the time. What advice do you have around dating someone with a different approach to finances? Is it a deal breaker? Oh, I really like this question. Thank you for asking it. I have a friend named Ramit Sethi, and he has a great podcast called I Will Teach You To Be Rich. And he basically brings couples on who are struggling with finances. And it's usually that one person is a saver and the other person is a spender, or they both are spenders and they're declaring bankruptcy, or maybe they have a lot of money, but they are comparison shopping for strawberries. And it's really, I mean, I'm very interested in finances and talking about money in general, but it's really opened my eyes just to how toxic it can be in a relationship if you're not on the same page about money. And so what I would say there is it doesn't have to be a deal breaker, but it is something that needs to be discussed. So if you had a sexual proclivity that your partner didn't like, you'd have to negotiate that. You'd have to say, this is my kink. This is what I'm into. Like, can we do that sometimes? Does it make you feel safe? How can we explore together? You would have that conversation and it might feel awkward, but you're trying to reach a place where you both get your needs met. And so similarly with finances, you can talk to someone and you can say, you know, 
What was money like in your family? What was your relationship to spending money? What were your parents like with saving? And so often money really comes from our family history and we inherit these invisible scripts that affect our thoughts. And so instead of being judgmental and saying this could never work, get curious and say, I want to understand who you are. I want to understand how you think about money. And then it might be something that is a challenge for you, but all relationships have challenges. And that's something that you can cope with and find compromise for. Yeah, it's so true. And you can also grow together in that aspect, I think. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Logan, what is one piece of advice you think all women should know when it comes to finding love? Ooh, one thing. Let me think of what do I want to say? Um, what comes to mind is I believe that we're all responsible for our own happiness. I think that if we go around the world expecting once I meet that person, they'll complete me, they'll make me happy. Oh, you're not making me happy. That's your fault. I just don't think that that's the right way of thinking about it. Like I'm responsible for my happiness. You're responsible for your happiness. And hopefully we'll make each other happier and more satisfied, but it's not fair for me to expect you to complete me. And so really thinking about how can you make your life what you want it to be? How can you manifest your dreams? How can you be the person that you want to be? And thinking about partnership as something where two epic people get to create this epic life together versus I am only half of a person and I'll be complete once I find my other half. I love that. Thank you so much, Logan. That's literally the whole premise of Single at 30. (laughs) Yay. Okay. I'm so glad I'm reinforcing the motto. Thank you so much for coming on Sunday Dating Scaries. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Logan. Yay. Thank you for the thoughtful questions. It was so fun to connect. And yeah, I had a great time. Yeah, I know my listeners are going to love your answers. So thank you. Yay. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sunday Dating Scaries. My modern women, don't forget to sign up to the first ever Single at 30 online event being held by psychologist Rachel Tocasio and I this October, where together we will get deep about what it takes to attract healthy, romantic love into your life. I love you all and we'll see you next week with part two of my interview with former maths contestant Haley Vernon.